Hello, this is Sam. This is Rob. And I'm Joe. Today on Alfinium, we're actually going to be talking about uh, a few, just six, of uh, Edgar Allan Poe's short stories. It's the ones we're going to talk about, and we're going to, not in any particular order here. Um, the Black Cat, The Telltale Heart, The Mask of the Red Death, The Fall of the House of Usher, The Cast of Amontillado, The Murders in the Rue Morgue, Oh, and the murders in the room morgue. That's that's the last one. So, but as well as the telltale heart. Oh, I I said the telltale heart. Telltale. Oh, <laughs> are you telling me I have it in the wrong order on my thing? I do. The Google telltale heart. To, Google even wants to correct me. They're both T's. The... Okay. <laughs> but it's all good. So, which one do we want to start out with? What? Do you want to start with the Telltale Heart? I, I feel like that's the one. If you, you know, read Edgar Allan Poe short, short stories in high school, like this was the one. At least I know I read in high school. Mm -hmm. mm, right. And probably gave me nightmares as a fourteen-year-old. I. <laughs> um, <laughs> so how did I, you feel about it then? I, as a as a high schooler, I um, was one very easily frightened, and still am. Um, and two, I moved around a lot while I was in high school. And so anytime after I read this story and we moved to a new house, I was convinced somebody had a body in the floorboards, um, <laughs> <laughs> which realistic or not, probably very unrealistic. Um, it's a story that sticks with you, right? Like, it's not something that you read and you sort of like never, at least in my opinion, like. It's something that stuck with me through the years of like those themes of dead people underneath your feet is something that sticks with you. Reading it now, I I love Poe. Like the the sort of how elaborate it gets and how detailed it is, and especially from like a high school point of view, like you don't necessarily get like the perspective of the villain as explicitly as you do in some of the horror short stories that Poe has. And I think that's a really important viewpoint that we ignore a lot. Hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. What about you, Sam? <laughs> Hold on one second. You, you go, Rob. You go. Okay. Okay. Um, so I, I did read this one in high school. I think this may be, this and The Raven would be yep. the only ones of Poe that I read in high school. But, I mean, The Raven kind of had the, you know, the sort of novelty of the fact that it's poetry and in the particular way that Poe constructs that piece. It's mm -hmm. very lyrical. You know, there's uh, there's a rhyme or two in just about every line. And so it kind of makes it more enjoyable to get through. Even, even though we're not going to talk about that one today, um, with the telltale heart, with this being one of Poe's other sort of hallmarks, you know, his his um, classics, I did not find <laughs> hardly anything to really enjoy in this piece. Um, I do, I, I would recognize that it's written well enough. Um, but as for 
what's actually you know being conveyed by the writing i didn't really care for it i thought that it was all it was literally just um unless i missed out on some deeper meaning it was just this guy obsessing about this nonsensical sort of situation and then at the end oh i killed somebody and then oh i've gone mad and then oh I've revealed to the police that I'm a murderer. I, the end. I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if nonsensical would really be the best way to because we don't know what the old man did, right? We have no idea what the before is. It picks up right when he is has already plotted this man's demise, right? Um, hmm. we, we pick up in the middle of the story, which is what a lot of really well done short stories do. Um, I actually, so I read, this is one of the ones that I did read in high school. I read a number of Poe's stuff because I had teachers who were obsessed with him, I think. Um, But I always liked this one and rereading it as an adult, I still like it because I think as an adult too, it's that much creepier and it's very clearly it's in his own mind, right? His own conscience is making him feel guilty when the uh, cops show up because they heard a scream. And, um, oh, spoiler warnings. Spoiler warnings for all the short stories. If that's not clear, they're short stories. (laughs) 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 Um, But the fact that it is very, there's no question that it's in this guy's mind because the the cops are continuing to talk to him. And the fact that he is so full of himself and invites them into the room where the body is, I, I think it's a tale of, um, really, he, you have this guy who, by definition, could be a man-man, right? He's hearing things. But in other ways, his conscience made him confess, right? There, he could have ignored it. I think the other thing, too, that hits on a certain note, especially when this was written, is in silence, right? Um, you can hear your own heartbeat if you're quiet enough. And um, one of the other things I always think about is the fact that if you are a like first responder, it is very possible to mistake your own heartbeat for someone else's. So I kind of think that when he was hearing this heartbeat getting louder and louder, I think he was hearing his own heart, right? Beat louder and louder. And he just took that and ran with it of, oh my gosh, they're going to find me out and I just have to confess. I just, I can't take it anymore. Um, and that's what I kind of like about this story is it's told from the bad guy's perspective, but his own conscience gives him away. See, I find it very interesting that just sort of like the order that we put it down and sort of like the notes that we had for each other is, so I read this second after the black and I, it fell flat for me after the black cat because the black cat just has so many more like jarring twists and turns for a short story again you know i think of a short story i think there's sort of like these one or two main plot points we maybe come part way through a story and we sort of just see a small snippet of the world while i think the black cat just sort of like the shock value as gruesome as it is as an animal lover the shock value is just so good, right? Because he kills his wife. Like, uh, whoops. And it's it, similarly, I am 
baking a dead person part of the infrastructure of a house. And, but there's so many other like shocks there of, oh, I also like buried this cat alive and it gave me away. And I love that so much more. I mean, I, I don't love dead cats. Like, don't get me wrong. And I don't like dead wives either. But I love the, like, punch you in the face. I did not expect that to happen. You have to, like, reread the sentences a couple times. You're like, I didn't re- misread that, right? Like, he just murdered his wife. Yeah. There were very similar sort of stories. I think I also read the, the Black Cat uh, before reading this one. And as it was going through, I was like, wait, is this the same story? <laughs> uh, Poe really likes the, uh, oh, I started off well enough, but then I went mad and I killed. And then I got found out by the police. <laughs> he, it seems, because I was cocky. Um, yeah, maybe he wrote and, them around the same time. Um, Let's see. I have a little... I think what's just... I don't know about the timing. I know around when the Telltale Heart was written, but I don't know when the Black Cat was written. Mm. But one thing he does Um, in both of them is evil doesn't win out. Even though they're creepy stories... I I think in the Black Cat, evil does not win in the end. Telltale Heart clearly it it wins in that he killed the man, but he was caught. Um. Yeah, no, some some similar happens at the end of the Black Cat. He uh he has his wife in the wall, and um, the police are in there, and he's like. See, gentlemen, this house is very sturdily constructed. Very sturdy. And then he, like, <laughs> taps against the same spot where his wife is in the wall with a cane. And uh, the cat gives a meow from inside the wall. But the cat was never, like, it was never stated to be in the wall up until that point. Yeah. And then mm-hmm. I guess that's when you're supposed to realize, like, oh, this guy is so crazy that he's become an unreliable narrator. Yeah. Kind of uh <laughs> Well, so I think maybe he just likes putting things into walls and into the you know, so heart, the black cat, as well as the cast of Amontillado. <laughs> like, where? The, the construction narrative that I think really ties all of these stories together yeah. is what yeah. we should be talking about today. <laughs> uh, Let's talk about the philosophy of buildings in. Uh, in classical literature, or classic literature, They're, not classical. Clearly they were trying to build mental blocks, and it just didn't work. It just it didn't work. <laughs> Is that a bad pun? <laughs> Maybe. Might have been. <laughs> the bricks were actually a metaphor for his writing, and his murdered <laughs> wife was the plot? guess so? I, I don't know. Uh, yeah. It was uh, an idea he trunked. <laughs> he started off really liking it, but then he got to be a better writer and he was like, man, this plot sucks. <laughs> so. <laughs> I, I 
kind of wonder. Too, you just have to bury it. So, because um, doing a little bit of research into Poe, Poe didn't actually like writing this kind of a thing. He wrote it because it was popular and it paid well. Like, and I wonder if the more short stories you read and the more similarities, if that indicates that he found a uh, a equation that worked. And then just twisted it a little bit to give people exactly what they wanted again. Um, which, I mean, if you don't like writing something, but it, it's what you make your money off of, I, I wouldn't blame them for that. No. <clears throat> but yeah, the, the grim dark that he did that is so poignant of his, his time, he didn't even like <laughs> to write. So, but but back to the stories. <laughs> I mean, I think we can stick on that for a minute, right? Like yeah. that—that's such a wild concept. Like if Nora, Nora Roberts like came out and was like, "I actually want to start writing gruesome murder stories." Like, I could be wrong. I think she actually has. Would <laughs> oh, she maybe she does. Maybe I like. I'm, I'm blanking on like sort of the you need we need we need know, the plug and play authors yeah. no, <laughs> but like oh Nicholas Sparks Nicholas Sparks right Nicholas Sparks like if Nicholas Sparks was like I'm going to write this like crazy murder and I think at some point like you need to have enough clout but like also you know what sells and so. <laughs> Maybe like all of your sort of interesting works and stuff like that, like that are passion projects, you just put on the side, right? Like, or publish under a pseudonym so that you can maybe have like, you, you don't have those preconceived notions from your population. Yeah. Oh, this was just a happy love story. It's not the kind of writing I expect from you, Mr. K Stephen King. Yeah. <laughs> refund. I want a refund. Break <laughs> Stephen King through the mud. Everyone's living at the end. What? <laughs> no, never. I do not buy Brandon Sanderson for contemporary classics. <laughs> That's not even. That doesn't even make sense. But you know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think I I like that. Like, I want him to just talk about a teenage, like a coming of age story by like a teenage girl. Like, that's what I want from Brandon Sanderson. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, like, that's, that's what he's known for. Like, Edgar Allan Poe, like, if you think about him, I'm not thinking, like, oh, what a romantic. Yeah. That's my favorite, like, mystery author, necessarily. Well, it, and I think everyone... This is what I want to read to my children whenever they're terrible, <laughs> and I want them to stay up at night. <laughs> I think kind of how that, that goes along with the idea that I think many, many people have this predisposition of Poe must have just been depressed all the time and just like this weirdo. And no, when you um, read firsthand accounts, like, you know, from people's diaries and journals and um, interviews, he was one of the nicest men. He was very happy. He was very pleasant to be around. <laughs> like... Um, it's it's that uh, hundred years later you're you're looking at the person through their work, which maybe isn't the right way to look at someone, and uh, judge them based off of what they wrote that sold. I, um, I mean, he did marry his his first cousin when she was like thirteen, 
but apparently that didn't make him depressed. So I, I, I don't know. He was an interesting person for that. Yeah, yeah. So the fact I had in here from his, um, from the Poe Museum, which is a really neat website to check out sometime, is that um, he only wrote 15 horror story stories out of a total of 70 short stories that he had published in his life. Um, I'd also say the more important fact is he wrote a book about seashells, according to the Poe Museum. Yes. And <laughs> I don't want to read it, but I want to check it out from the library. <laughs> uh, I Well, and I really want to know, I want to read his comedies after, because I have a Poe collection, right? And when I look through it, the sections they have in my collection... So they have Death and Resurrection, Fear and Obsession, Tales of Murder, which all of these short stories came from those collections. And then the last two, which are the smallest sections in the book, are uh, Adventures of Sea and Sky, which I... Does that have the Book of Seashells? It, it doesn't look to have the Book of Seashells, which makes me sad. And then they have... Um, what all can you talk about with seashells? Sorry, I'm going to be stuck on this for a minute. <laughs> Is it drawing? <laughs> Is it a graphic novel about seashells? I, I don't. It can't be a graphic novel. I don't think he was. He might have been an artist. But can't. I think that was his thing. Or isn't yet. True. True. Well, maybe it's something like something terrible happened at the beach, and now I just keep seeing seashells everywhere. <laughs> And, and then so I decided to kill the first person I saw and bury them in the sand. Actually, you know, you know what? There is one story in here. Let me flip to it quick. That is almost a hundred pages. That I'm now wondering if this is in fact the seashell book. Um, she shall she story. Yeah. Did <laughs> you uh, let's see? There's a whole forward. Oh, it's it's a uh, interesting. Okay, so uh, is it the seashell book? He... Yes, I think so. Yeah, I have the seashell book. Is it a graphic novel? <laughs> it's not. It's it's, uh, it's typical style, but I think it is. Um, by modern day standards, it would be considered a novella, it looks like. But I mean, it's also Poe, so really just the act of trying to read it makes it the same as a full-length novel. Um, oh, true. <laughs> the amount of time spent per word mm -hmm. is much higher, because he's just trying to say a lot. I, I, at some level, it's poetic prose, right? And so it, this, this story is a has classic a dog, author. There's a dog. There's a dog in the seashell seashell story. Does he murder that dog? Because he also what... had a monkey in the like black cat story, and I also want to read that story. Like, what was your relationship with your pet monkey? Yes. Why did you have a pet monkey? Was it legal? <laughs> There's a lot to unpack from like the side characters and the side plots. So I. But yes. I wanted to talk about the fall of the House of Usher when it comes to like a lot of like words like. It, it reminds me a lot of like you're getting paid per word, oh, and yeah. so yes, we are definitely talking story, about at the actual plot. Did need half of the words that are in that story. 
like, we don't get to the plot until you've yeah. read half of the words yeah. and you go yeah oh well and they, they mentioned okay the sister and i was like all right so we, the, the madam as she was referred to the madam and uh, you find out uh, that she's the twin of the master of the house, and I did I did really like the description of him because as I was reading, I'm like, oh, this is a gothic description. If ever <laughs> there was a gothic description of a man, because they just described him as soon as they started talking about him, I just thought of a a dead body, honestly, from his description. Um, yep. Trying to find where that is oh here it is um it was with difficulty that i could bring myself to admit the identity of the wan wan being before me with the companion of my early childhood a cadaverousness of complexion an eye large liquid and luminous beyond comparison lips somewhat thin and very pallid but of a surprisingly beautiful curve a nose of a delicate Hebrew model, but with a breadth of nostril unusual and similar formations. A finely molded chin. Uh, hair of a more than web-like softness and tenuity. Like, I don't think in any of the other stories mm -hmm. he described anyone with quite that level of detail as he did with no. Usher. And... From the get-go, I'm like, he's gonna die. He's totally gonna die. Like, <laughs> why would you spend so much time describing a man and and not describing what he looked like? If, I think it would have made more sense if he had described what he looked like before meeting him again when he was a boy, but you never get that pre-description. And it's... Mm -hmm. Like, there's no purpose of juxtaposition, right? Like, it's words... For words. The only, the only thing I really got for him um, was the cadaverousness. Like, honestly, you could have just had that, and it would have done what it was meant to do. It was still a beautiful description, a weird description, especially hair like spiderweb. I don't want hair like spiderweb. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> but it was... it the how The fall of the House of Usher... I think in some ways was kind of a disappointment considering how often it does get referenced, especially when you have um, kind of any family that had power that has gone into ruin. I think in um, a few different movies and other books, the fall of the House of Usher or the reference to the House of Usher is a rather common reference to make in literature. Um, and... It's a reference literally for the end of the book and the creepiness of the house. I think those are the two reasons why it's referenced. No. Mm. Beautifully written. Just... Well, with references, you also have the fact that you can reasonably expect other people to know them. Mm -hmm. So even if it's not like the best type of story like this from that time, Still, it's Poe. People know Poe. So yeah. you can make references to Poe and, oh, this is the greatest downfall of a house since the fall of the House of Usher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say this one was probably the one that I had the most trouble getting through. I think it might be the longest, unless I'm mistaken. Uh, let me look here. And it was, it was to me, um, just very tedious. Like you guys have said, 
there's lots of just words there that kind of just um, serve no real purpose in moving a plot forward, uh, but rather it's just there to kind of explain the situation. And it gets to the point for me where it started to ruin the dread because, you know, by the, the nature of dread, so yeah, I'm supposed to be like, oh no, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to see what's coming, but I have to keep reading, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I had like the opposite. It was like I don't want to see what's coming, and I'm literally just like, hurry up so we can get to the point where you know this story is supposed to be good. <laughs> I will also say I expected like at the end for there to be you know the death. And then him hide him in a wall, <laughs> and the police come. Right, like but he ki- they kind there, of there's almost the like almost a tropeness there. They kind of it kind of there there was a person in a wall. Yes, there was. We a were person. back to our construction basis. They they still put her in a room and closed off the room. And at the end, the entire house of Usher falls upon the house of Usher. I did appreciate that. That was just just hey, the, the alliteration of it too. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me so in high school I had to write a story like we got like a vocabulary word and I had to write an entire story that built up to this vocabulary word and why this vocabulary word and that kind of felt like what we were doing like this is a whole story the house of usher like like for the almost like the idiom at the end of it yes the one I did like too that this particular story I think um, kind of in the best way of the short of the ones that we read just sets up what society was like at this point in time. Yeah, it does give a better picture of like the broader world outside of like a single house. And and I like the fact that they are very he's very specific in the beginning of generally a house. So like when it comes to aristocrats. Um, the home that they occupy is generally of a different name than the family's name. But this family had been here for so long that they had become completely and utterly intertwined. So when you're referring to one, you're really referring to both. Um, that I did. I really did like that a lot. Um, I do have a little interesting tidbit on the fall of the House of Usher. Um, because... Poe's inspiration, they actually do uh, have a good idea of what it was. Um, They think that the um, inspiration for the insane Usher twins uh, was likely to real-life Usher twins, James Campbell Usher and Agnes Pye Usher. They were the children of Luke Noble Usher, an actor who performed with and was a close friend of Poe's actress mother, Eliza Poe. Much as in the story, the real Usher twins are believed to have gone insane. And um, I, I like the play on, on the words, too, of, okay, so who's an actor? He clearly was not an aristocrat. But if you're playing off words, the father's name was Luke Noble Usher. Why not make them a noble family? I kind of, I, I like the play that comes out of what was probably the basis of this story, the inspiration. Um, and I kind of wonder too if maybe that's why it had that description maybe that's what they looked like or the father looked like was that specific Mm. description and that's the only reason I could come up with why this story has such a such a specific description in it 
But by the way, Rob, I looked it up. This is not the longest short story. The longest one by um, almost double was The Murders in the Rue Morgue. Really? Oh, wow. So the fact that this one felt like it was the longest. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was... It was pretty bad. I mean, it, it wasn't bad, but it was, um, it was you know, there, there are going to be people who like that stuff, but it and was All long. of them are English teachers. <laughs> <laughs> or they want to become the, like, modern day Poe. And mm-hmm. I, did, yeah. I did notice, I don't know if you guys noticed this as you're reading it, but the way that this is written, all of these, how Poe wrote, which I think was mostly typical for the time i think his writing style is still very unique but it was yeah a fit if you were to write like this now people would tell you you have horrible writing they <laughs> they would i know because as i was reading no, it, i true. realized that i read because i read all of poe's stuff um in, throughout middle school and high school like I, I enjoyed reading it because of the the style of their writing not so much the stories but I, I, as I was reading, I'm like, oh, every time I take a break from writing and try and go back into it, I apparently default back to a Poe method, which is not well received <laughs> at all <laughs> nowadays. So, um, but he, you know, the last something. Thing I'll, okay. I'm just going to say the last thing I'll say about the fall of the house of Usher is the beginning when he's just like, oh, this, like, boyhood friend doesn't really have any other friends. Like, he's kind of sick, so he reached out to me, so I'm just going to blindly go and see him, even though I haven't seen him in years. Reminded me a lot of the book from a couple of years ago that came out called Nothing to See Here oh. um, by Kevin Wilson, where it is a friend sort of blindly going to help this person they haven't talked to in years and then dealing with insane twins. Um in this regard, the nothing to see here was about like the twins were like the children of uh, or the stepchildren of the friend and they catch on fire whenever they have big emotions. And so it's a great book. But I was like reading that I was like drawing parallels the whole time. Um, it is less deathy if you're interested in that book um, or like looking at it. But from a theme perspective of just. If I had a friend from like grade school write me a letter and mean like, I'm on my deathbed, please come hang. <laughs> I'd be like, cool, cool, cool. Uh, I have a thing. Um, <laughs> sorry. Maybe maybe that makes me a terrible person. I, well, I think that was more of an old, old thing than a modern yeah. day. Yeah. I think back then you could pretty reasonably have uh a normal life and just not really have any friends. Uh, nowadays, I don't know how much now, like now versus then in terms of like socialness and mm-hmm. um, free time. But I think back then it, it definitely seems like, yeah, you got like two or three friends <laughs> in your whole life. Uh, uh, Whereas now, you know, you come across somebody who only has two or three friends. Chances are something's wrong with that person. <laughs> I, think, I think, I don't know if it, it would be incorrect, though, to 
today to say that there are probably people who, a lot of people who have those five lifetime friends. Like, you might not have a lot of friends who, if they called you and asked to see you on their deathbed, you would go. But you have a couple that even if you haven't talked to them in a long time, they'd call you and be like, you know what? I can make that work. I can, I can do that for you. Um, it's just not a common thing. And I don't think it's a thing most modern people would ask of someone. It seems yeah. like a yeah. hundred, like two hundred years ago, I think that was a more common thing to ask of someone um, than it is today. So I wanted to talk about uh, with this story, it reminded me of something else that I had read. And it was, I had to look it up. It's The Mask. And it's a part of The King in Yellow. If you guys have uh, ever heard of that, it is a short story collection um, that are, well, no, they're not all. <laughs> like, um, I think there's seven, six or seven short stories in them. And four of those short stories have this sort of thematic um, objective connection to each other based around this fictional play that's going around, I guess, London at the time. It was just called The King in Yellow. And apparently, if you read it, it makes you go mad. And um, with the math in particular, I, I struggle to remember like where The King in Yellow comes up in that one. But the overall sort of like plot progression I found to be kind of similar. Um, just because you have these two guy friends and this one lady friend. Um, the narrator is, in this story, he is um, attracted to the lady friend, but she's with the other guy friend. And the male narrator kind of like, he loves the both of them so much that he just lets them be happy. And he's not, you know, like overly jealous or anything. But it all sorts of kind of goes awry because she gets like this illness I I think from reading the King in Yellow, and she just begins to like perish, and um, by the end of the story, the guy that she was with is going mad uh, because he's like he wants to bring her back, and all throughout the story you have something in the background where that same guy has discovered some kind of I will call it magical science, uh, alchemy, I guess in which he has, he's found out how to turn living things into like stone. Um, but then by the end of the story, you find out that those things, it wears off, they come back to life. And so uh, uh, long story short, it's actually really good. It's probably my favorite story from that series. I recommend it if you guys are into like moderately creepy, uh, slightly overwritten, slightly too long stories. But um, it, it gave me similar sort of vibes. And I think if you want it to like the fall of the House of Usher, you will probably like the mask at least a little bit more. Oh, exciting. <laughs> Don't sound so enthused about it. <laughs> I've never read I think I've, I've No, I'm looking it up and, and talking at the same time, which always... It never comes off well. Um, <laughs> and then 
it just like very well leads in. You just said the word the mask and we have a story, the mask of the red death. Like, yes, I, I think for creepiness, I think the mask uh, of red death, uh, I'm sure I don't miss this name of the mask of the red death. I think that one hit creepy from the beginning so well from the setup of you're having a play go on, which when you were talking about the, the, can you name that? What was the name of that disease again that they had? The golden, the yellow rob. What? The, you said the yellow crown or the yellow. The king in yellow. The king in yellow. And that was the name of the disease, right? No, it's a play. The play just causes sort of madness. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, I see. I thought that was a disease, but the the mask of the red. Are you thinking of yellow fever? I am. That's what I was. It was very confused. (laughs) You know, those things that are in (laughs) diseases that have colors in them the red death, (laughs) yellow fever. Black plague. Blue toes. Yeah. But I think that from the get-go was creepy because I think, um, you know, when you have a, a plague that causes you to, to where there's a point where there is a color involved, you know there's a reason that color's involved when it comes to a disease. And one called the Red Death, before they even described it, I'm like, mm, there's going to be blood all over with it. Like, it's just... a post story that we picked out only the horror ones of course there's gonna be blood all over it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but from the get-go it just had a creepy air from it from the plague itself which is creepy and then the fact that this prince decides to take a thousand of his closest friends and hole up inside a palace basically and honestly, I I was I'd forgotten I'd read this a while ago, but I had forgotten how long they were in before anything happened. And I think it said in the story they were there for six months before they had the um, the masquerade. And I would have thought that this would have happened earlier. Like there's something like that being holed up separate from the common people. They're definitely gonna have it. Like. <laughs> The rich are going to fall. Um, but I think this one, it was just creepy from the get-go. And then when you heard about the masked figure, he, he this one he did a good job of getting the creepiness across from how everyone else was reacting to him. And the setting itself. You have, I think it was seven room giants. That are ball, all different colors. All different colors. And the, it was hard. It was hard to mentally grasp the idea of... Um, there being no light other than the light coming through these windows that are different colors that are then giving the color off. Um, and this, this is one, this one, and I think the House of Usher, these are the two that in, in animated form are, they make more sense because you're able to get that visual feeling that Mm -hmm. he was trying to get across with his word choice. Um, Extraordinary Tales is the animated one that I'm talking about. And honestly, I'm so glad that I'd watched that, I think, a year or two ago before reading it this time. Because when I got to The Mask of the Red Death, 
I was better able to visualize what was going on and how dark it would be, as well as how easily it would be for this guy to just suddenly appear in the crowd, right? You have a dark room that's weird colors. Everyone <laughs> is in masks anyway. I think everyone's in masks anyways. And it just this idea of this creepy guy who in this case, has the plague, just shows up, and you don't know where he's been, you don't know who he's already been by, like, <laughs> it's, you know. it's already there, it's amongst you, you have no choice but to deal with it now, because it's been there. And, um, yeah, I, I liked The Mask of the Red Death. I think it was, in a lot of ways, the creepiest of the group, especially given the current times. Um, I was about to say, like, this one hit home a lot harder. Like, I don't necessarily relate to murdering cats, but I (laughs) I do relate to, like, that, the group fear of, like, if you, I don't know, there's been, like, so many SNL skits over the last few weeks of just, like, everybody's like, yeah, I've been super safe. And then somebody comes and, like, well, I've been mostly safe, except for those 15 doorknobs that I licked at the hospital. (laughs) They're like... Again, what are you doing? Like, and so like the the fear, the isolation, um, the person wanting to take down the rich. I get it. I get it. I don't have rainbow rooms though. So, and this one also has an interesting, probable um, inspiration for it um, mm-hmm. because we're talking about the current times and people doing weird things and whatnot and this setting. So um, Poe did live through the cholera epidemic of 1832. Um, And one of the things that happened uh, during this time was a group of 2000 Parisians decided to celebrate what seemed to be the end of the world by throwing a masquerade ball at the theater des varieties. French, I butchered that. Um, and at the stroke of midnight, one of the guests arrived dressed as a as the personification of cholera, with skeletal armor and bloodshot eyes. And the account of the party appeared in a very specific issue of the New York Mirror, and they, where Poe probably saw it. Um, the fact that that people actually threw a two thousand person party in the middle of a very, cholera is a terrible, terrible disease to die from. Uh, and they just threw a giant par- party and someone was literally dressed up as the disease. <laughs> Looking at you, teenagers having COVID parties this summer. Yeah. You weren't original. Yeah, no, not at all. Not at all. They did it with smallpox. They did it with cholera. <laughs> Um, but to then take that to the next level that the Mask of the Red Death does, where it's not just a person who has the Red Death. Literally, it is the Red Death Plague, physically personified as a, you can't outrun this no matter how hard you try. It doesn't matter if you're rich, you will still die. Uh, which... I don't know how often that was, like, shot in the rich's face in the 1800s of, you know, just because you're rich and you don't live in poverty doesn't mean that you couldn't still die of the same things that we do. Like. 
<laughs> and news alert. <laughs> this just in. You're human. Yeah. <laughs> I'm what? What? <laughs> I'm not no. the same as those peasants. <laughs> but, well, I think it's funny, too, to to the extraordinary numbers of this. I almost did a double take when, you know, Poe says, you know, like a thousand of his friends. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking, who the heck has a thousand friends? <laughs> I mean, Not we joke about, nope. yeah, we joke about that guy having only one friend, but a thousand is, uh, that's like hard to conceive. That's like a real large quarantine pod. Yeah. Well, and also at like a thousand people, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trust having a thousand people in one house. It's essentially a palace is a giant house, right? A thousand people in one house together. Like there's not only are you going to have conflicts. I feel like that's a setup where someone could be a serial killer and you'll never figure it out. <laughs> All the bodies are in the walls. Yeah. Or they could be a plague, and you will figure it out, and you won't be able to do anything about it. Yes! You can't leave! You find out who the killer is, but you can't leave. (laughs) You can't get away. Mm. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is that Poe, he must have thought at some point while he was writing or devising that, like, oh yeah, I could pick him off. Yeah, I could have, I could have, you know, uh, uh, Tension in sort of, you know, people are going missing. Uh, somebody's looking for someone, can't find them anywhere. Well, where the heck could they have gone? Like, we're all pretty much locked in. Mm-hmm. But instead of doing that, he chose to just make, you know, kind of at like the height of this thing. Uh, that's where the terror comes in. And I do think that that leaves some juicy fruit for the imagination about what could have happened afterwards. Because, unless I'm wrong, not that many people perish when the Red Death guy actually shows up. But they're going to. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's going to be like a mad dash to get out of that um, the palace, I think, that they were in. I think that that was a very interesting choice. Mm-hmm. Would have worked even better if maybe the story was a little bit shorter. <laughs> just, just maybe a little bit. Well, and so you go from the Red Death to the cast, where I, I kind of, the reason I'm making that connection is, so they're in, an, in a confined space. They can see the sky, I'm sure, if they're in a palace, you can see the sky, but you're you're stuck in one place, right? They, I'm assuming they probably barred the doors and did everything so that if the peasantry came knocking, they couldn't get in. Um, and then you go to the cast, which is set down in the, um, catacombs, right? So another very much a confined space with controlled entrances, well, uh, sketchy controlled entrances. Um, (laughs) and once more, he is putting someone, this time instead of them willingly go, going into a confined place and getting barred in themselves... Someone else is barring them in for them to die once more within the walls. <laughs> um, mm. And 
it, it it's kind of interesting comparing these and all the similarities that are between them. Um, because I guess in some ways the cast is almost more, I don't know, it's very similar in the Red Death in that they're confined, they will die without ever being able to leave. Because I think that's the other kind of implication of if the prince dies, who's going to give the order for the guards to let them out, right? Like, mm, yeah. even if the Red Death didn't kill them all, would they be stuck inside because the prince w was killed and the guards will be like, no, no, we have to have the order from the prince. The prince is dead. Well, one of you killed him. <laughs> we can't let, let you out. You must, you know, it'd be kind of a weird jump to make probably, but I, I think- With that, there is, there, there's also like all of the servants. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got a thousand people there. Uh, typically when aristocracy of that time would travel, I don't imagine that they would come in the numbers of thousands or, you know, a thousand and all of them just be relying on the staff of the castle. Probably they would bring their own attendants, their own maids and servants because they're planning to be there for a while. Mm -hmm. uh, and I could see it getting a little Hunger Games up in there mm -hmm. uh, because... <laughs> you know it's not like it's going to be any better out on the streets uh so do we stay do we go you know if the people who go go how are we going to make sure they don't get back in mm -hmm. you know uh if the people who stay stay how are we going to make sure that they don't you know sort of take over the country or you know all of those sorts of things i actually now that we're talking about it I think there's a much more interesting story to be told after this story ends. <laughs> How, what did they I do? might write it. <laughs> I might yeah. get a little Poe fan fiction. <laughs> that's honestly, if that's the only thing that we inspire after this, is Poe fan fiction, everyone to read the seashell book. We've succeeded. Yes. <laughs> yes. Read the seashell book. Uh. <laughs> but, um, with the cask of Amontillado. So that was, uh, I would say that was, not to be a downer, the only one of the stories that I outright liked. I mean, I appreciated all of them, but that was the only one that I outright liked. And I can see some of the parallels that you're talking about, Sam. You've got the confinement. You've got, mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of a recurring theme with all of these yeah. stories. But you've also got um, this air of, Vengeance, I guess you could say, uh, whereas it's sort of personified by the disease itself in um, The Mask of the Red Death. With the cask of Amontillado, it, it is very particular person who has a very particular reason, even though we don't find it out. At the very beginning of the story, it's the first line. He says, like, there is a very specific reason why I'm doing this. You know, the thousand... Uh, injuries of Fortunato I had borne the best I could but when he ventured upon insult I vowed revenge you know that already kind of tells you this guy has been you know let's just break that down into normal terms this guy has been like I guess uh, 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 put in hard situations or maybe even physically actually wounded 
by this guy mm -hmm. a lot. But it wasn't until the guy chose to insult him that he was like, all right, <laughs> you're dead. <laughs> I'm going to kill you. <laughs> and the whole story, we get that. That never goes away. You never forget. It never gets pushed aside. It never gets uh, uh, even disguised, really, um, except for in the clever way that um, Poe has Montresor talk to Fortunato. Uh, and you've even got a little bit of that same air of sickness, I guess, just to just to hem in the fact that they're in a not safe place and to kind of keep your mind on Fortunato's health, I would guess, uh, when they're going down into the vaults and they've got the niter on the wall and Fortunato has these coughing fits. <clears throat> and it provides, it provides this nice vehicle for Mantra's score to kind of feign uh, uh, worry for his health and to kind of you know, even offer him, literally offer him a way to escape his own doom. But Fortunato, he, like, he knows that he's not going to take him up on that because he knows this guy so well. Uh, I, I think that that's important to consider as well because you got the thousand injuries, right? This didn't happen over the course of a day. This wasn't just someone that Montresor just bumped into and... um you know, has some kind of falling out with, like they've known each other for a while. And, and now Montresor is like, you know, I've, I kind of get the impression that he's always been a dangerously minded fellow, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until you like, you hit something home that he was like, all right, you know, you've been you've been treating me wrong, wrongly all this time, but it's not, I guess, until you thought you could get away with it that I'm going to show you that you can't. Oh, I love that story so much. <laughs> Somebody else talk now because I could go on for a while. <laughs> I think. Oh, you go, Joe. I was just going to say, I found this story to just be so interesting from. Uh, like the way that it's set up because this is the only story that we read that had like the the volume of dialogue back and forth um, yeah compared to like there's still a lot of talking in the fall of the house of usher but there is just so much like I felt like more humanity to it because there was true back and forth not my own recollection of a conversation that I had with another character. Mm. If that makes sense. And so I, I enjoyed it that way because it, one, the premeditation was eerie. Um, and again, I take things way too close to heart. And so it made me like rethink all of my like friendships and like, Oh, who's going to try and murder me this week. So we'll unpack that in another episode, but that is just, I think, really interesting, the sort of the depth of the premeditation of it all compared to the others, especially like the black cat where it, it it's an impulsive murder. I, I think that's, and that's what I was 
want to piggyback off that is this is one of the few ones where we really have the motive very well laid out for us and and it hits this one in particular hits really well and this is so believable that this could have happened that this did happen um and i think this one kind of represents the the best um example for poe poe was a reporter and poe covered murder trials and things of that nature and so and to cover be a reporter at that time especially for the trials you were there so i think this one a lot of it is cap a capturing of what poe saw in other people that that was not you know it was still reprehensible but it was understandable like he was able to capture though that that thought process and how one arrives to being essentially pushed to this right um and and this one just does a good job of creating people that you could see this happening and it would be terrible but it wouldn't be a surprise if something like this happened especially with this kind of a, a situation um and I think this one, along with the rest of these short stories, I think what made Poe so great was the fact that he did have that reporter's background, that he did have not first-hand experience, but that second and third-hand. And um, especially when you think of the times, right? And a newspaper was the primary way that people found out information other than word of mouth. Um, those stories, when you read the newspapers from the mid-1800s, early 1800s, had so much more information in them than a lot of today's stories do. Um, Mm -hmm. And they they were very limited to their word choice, so that word choice was so precise. But those reporters, I think, in a lot of ways, got a better understanding of the the things they were covering when it came to -to human-to-human kind of kind of activities and uh i just think this one captures that a lot better especially with all of the dialogue and the dialogue feels just like a reporter would actually have been interacting with it because in reality when they're interacting with someone it's all verbal and i think that's the other reason why this one works so well and i think i don't know because rob said he didn't read this one in high school did you read this one in high school joe I didn't, no. Okay, I I read this, actually, I think it was right at the end of a Shakespeare um, section we did. Um, but I remember, very vividly remember reading this one in high school because of the dialogue and the way that he tells this story. And it just does such a good job of it. I think a lot of people, this would be one of their favorites. Even if you didn't tell them it was by Poe, it's still a, just so well done. And one of the ones yep. that pushes you through it and is interesting. And this is the one that if you give someone who's never read Poe anything else, this, they're like, oh, I want to go read more. And you have, you, you, sir, madam, have uh, some interesting stories you're going to get to have to go through, too, if you actually <laughs> 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 Yeah, maybe, maybe 
start with this one and then kind of just poke at the other ones. (laughs) Does it start off good? Am I intrigued from the start? Okay, well, no. Let's just skip to halfway point and see how I feel. (laughs) Because there's a good chance things aren't picking up until the halfway point. But the the other thing I like about this one is is the setting too. This one has I think the most I think it's a very unique setting. The mask also has a really unique setting in the multicolored mm-hmm. ballroom that I don't think something like that ever actually existed. Like that just sounds that'd be a really weird building to make. <laughs> um, but the catacombs and every time I read this even though I think it's supposed to be set in Italy or Spain or I don't. I think it's London. Is it London? And the the guy Fortunato is supposed to be in Italian. He starts off when he describes Fortunato. He says something like, um, uh, he wasn't like all the other Italians who only pretend to no uh wine to impress millionaires um yeah. it, it just kind of gave me the impression that fortunato was italian but he was not in an italian society okay. they might be in france actually because well, i think montresor is supposed to be french uh, yeah that's where i wasn't but every time i read it i always think of the catacombs of paris um, which are the most famous catacombs i think and um Actually, why this one was in my brain recently this last year year is um, Halloween, which couldn't do Halloween like normal. So I just went to a a person that's in my, did you call them pods, Joe? I did, yeah. In my, I'm going to, I'm going to use that term, pod. Um, And we went over there and we were watching horror movies as, I mean, Halloween, right? Horror movies, got to do it. And um, there's this horror movie called As Above, So Below that takes place in the Parisian um, catacombs. And as I was watching that, I just was imagining this short story. Um, because that that movie, spoiler alerts, uh, they, so the Parisian catacombs have many, many entrances. And there are people, multiple people, who have been lost underground because they only have something like 5% of the catacombs actually discovered, like mapped out. It's, it's something like 200 miles of catacombs are underneath that city. And uh, <laughs> watching this movie, which was, I believe, filmed in some of the catacombs, you, I just kept thinking about this short story and the fact that, yeah... People probably actually could have easily done this, and to this day, they would not be able to find the bodies. Because if you went far enough in, no one would know. You could you could yell forever, and no one would hear you. And just the the fact that watching this movie and seeing the catacombs, and seeing a movie where what they did was they uh, you have to go through the seven levels of hell and come back out again and it it just gave me Poe vibes specifically the cast vibes watching it <laughs> I hope they were inspired by Poe because this just has a vague feeling of the cast and um, 
and the fact that when they went down there, there wasn't, no one had a, uh, um, like, evil intent going down there, but evil finds its way to you kind of, kind of thing, and it was, oh. but, and reading it again, I was just, I kept thinking about that movie now. I don't think I can ever unentwine the two, <laughs> but <laughs> the... And it, it's they, he does give that impression of that setting, but actually seeing seeing what those look like just makes it that much creepier for someone to bring you into a room and then build up a wall, and that's where you're gonna die by yourself in the dark. <clears throat> like, just oh, yeah, it was. Construction horror. Yes. <laughs> Construction yes. horror. That is what Poe is. <laughs> that is what Poe does. <laughs> well, that actually gives us a nice segue because now uh, you you must know that Poe is also credited with being the father of detective fiction. Yes. Um, which is, I guess he did a lot of things Um uh, kind of in ways that people hadn't done them before because with the murders of the Rue Morgue, we get this very uh, Sherlock Holmes-esque kind of story, but before Sherlock Holmes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, just a little side note, and then you can keep going. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is actually um, quoted as uh, being heavily influenced by Edgar Allan Poe. So, oh yeah. Yeah. So now you can see it. Oh. <laughs> I I in the audiobook that I got, it sort of opens up with um one of these sort of stories. And <laughs> let me tell you how much just trying to read all of Poe was a bad idea. But um, I, I did eventually have to skip around. But before I got to the stories that we had agreed to talk about today, I had read uh, one of his uh, detective fiction stories. And just the way that he describes everything. I mean, it is it is very clearly a precursor to Sherlock Holmes. Um, uh, and... The only reason I describe it like that is because I had already read the Sherlock Holmes books. And so when he's like reading this, I'm like, wow, um, you know, a lot of similarities there. And well, I did think that there was a tad too much sort of what would you call it? Like explanatory sort of step by step. Like and then this is what had happened, and then that is what has happened. Exposition? Is huh? that the word you're looking for? Exposition? I mean, I suppose so. But, yeah, specifically referencing, like, the actions of a person instead of just, like, the world itself. You know, when he's talking about how these murders had come to place. Mm-hmm. <laughs> way too long. Way too long for me. Um uh, because uh, unless I'm mixing it up with the other one, they get to the murder part of the story pretty darn quickly. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the story is, 
Oh, shoot, I can't remember his name. But the detective character, like, explaining how uh, it happened. Uh, Dupin. Am I wrong? Du- yeah, the main character is Dupin. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's that expose of how how this was done, um, who done it, why they did it, how he figured out how they did it, the the um, what the clues were, what gave the murder away, and um, I I think I I liked this because I I liked that level of description from it. In the fact that it interweaves so well, and and if you aren't following really close, it's easy for the reader to have difficulty figuring out who killed the woman, who who killed the women, who did it, who's actually figuring out what, what's going on, and um, it's something that I think. more modern day murder mystery authors have been trying to do and um, he does it in a way that I found interesting to read but if you don't like very excessive wording especially when it comes to mysteries then it's, it's difficult to get through it's a very difficult to get through it's difficult to follow um but, but yeah, reading it, you definitely easily read what would, what would eventually become uh, Sherlock Holmes. And that style, too, of, of writing. I actually just finished The Angel and the Crow by... Oh, I have his name here. I don't remember the author's name right now, but... In it, uh, it's actually a fan fiction of Sherlock Holmes, but... Oh, hold on. We don't talk about fan fiction no, here. No, it's published. It got published. It started as a fan fiction. It started. It's fine. <laughs> I have religious beliefs against fan fiction. <laughs> but uh, reading this kind of made me wish that the author had read this story too and let this influence her the way it did Conan Doyle um because it reading that fan fiction which at this point would be secondhand from the murders in the Rue Morgue it it was missing something it just was so clearly not Sherlock um it, it was missing that level of intrigue that this style lends to itself um this isn't a, a, a story that relies on the characters being mysterious to to tell it it's it relies on Dupin and um I think I think it, it, that's kind of what makes it interesting um I kind of wonder too reading this I, I really want to know how back in, I think this one was published, like, in the 1840, maybe 18, like, mid-1830s. I wonder what um, murders looked like when they would appear in a newspaper at the time. And um, kind of just how, how they were done then. Because Dupin kind of wraps it up nicer than I'm sure it was possible to do back then. 
far nicer. <laughs> right? um, so, uh, but I, I think maybe too, this story could have shed a lot of light to people who weren't involved in that kind of thing. How detectives and police officers were able to find these killers without modern day techniques. Um, it was, I enjoyed it. It was, a, it, it was between this and Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes is definitely, I think, a, a better mystery to read. Because uh, Sherlock Holmes is a very interesting character. And it's just a little bit of an easier read than, than the Murders in the Rue Morgue is. But I, I really like the Murders in the Rue Morgue. I think of, of the collection here. My favorite is still the cast. But I like the Murders, too. Joe, you've been pretty quiet this whole time. How did you feel about it? I didn't read it. Um, <laughs> oh. But I also wanted to coin the term grandfic as opposed to fanfic. So it's like what was tertiarily inspired from. Ooh, I like hmm. that. That is also why I've been quiet thinking about that term. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. I, because, I mean, you could maybe argue that... Sherlock Holmes was kind of a fan fiction of Dupin. I mean, kind of. It's not a fanfic if it's published. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that from somebody one time. Yeah. <laughs> sure. I mean, honestly, I think as long as you expand on it and, you know, if it's a public domain, as long as you make the characters your own, there. What's the what's the problem? There's no problem. I, well, and this this brings us to the end of, of the short stories that, that we read. But I think too, ending on the murders in the Rue Morgue that has such a traceable lineage through modern day murder mysteries. Um, I think I think that's the other big thing with Poe was. Poe was an inspiration to so many authors, um, and in in a lot of ways, even with the least of the stories, which I think we all do, we all agree that we all disliked the fall of the House of Usher maybe the most. Is that yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even even with that one, you can still see the characterization he made, and you can still see. I, I can see people probably pulling bits out of that story to then use later on. And I think that's kind of the legacy of Poe. Um, I would say that outside of a few of his short stories, I prefer his his poetry. Um, I think his poetry is wonderful. Um, but the one of the big reasons to read the Poe stories is to kind of see the influence it has on other stories that you enjoy, including movies and such. I mean, I went on a tirade about a, a horror movie <laughs> I saw similarities of from one of these. Um, and I mean, 
at its core, like Poe is the backbone of construction horror. True. And so, like, <laughs> you think about, I was trying to think about the, the other construction horror books that I've listened to or read recently, but like Mexican Gothic, oh, construction horror. Yeah. Like, the idea that you can take an everyday object, i.e. your house, and you can turn it into a weapon of fear through literature is terrifying and monumental. Yeah. I imagine somebody's going to come out and be like, actually, in the third century, there was a lot of construction horror <laughs> from so-and-so, right? Like, But like, if we're talking about modern day construction horror, I think this really like hits the nail on the head. Mm-hmm. I I, uh. I agree, especially, <laughs> especially coming from the goth, the Mexican Gothic, which I that that perfectly describes that book. I actually did not like that book at all, but I loved that book. I I will also say, if you're listening to construction horror, do not do house projects while listening. Oh, no. I was listening to Mexican Gothic while painting my walls, um, and had to take a couple of quick lays because. I was so overwhelmed by what could be in my wall. Um, <laughs> so don't get too existential like I do. Um, but it, it I, I don't know. Edgar Allan Poe's fantastic. Give it another look-see if you haven't picked it up since high school. And if you don't like horror, he has a lot of stuff that isn't horror, y'all. Most of his stuff was not horror. Um, so, and... Like I said, I love his poetry. the The poetry of Edgar Allan Poe is is just beautiful. It rhymes, but also it just creates its own beat. And each each poem has its own unique beat, which is nice. But what? So my favorite was the cast. Uh, Joe, what was yours? I was gonna as like <laughs> again, not pro animal abuse, real pro cat. But I, yeah, I the twist and turns just kind of, to keep me on the edge of my seat through an entire short story. Like, and it's not just like one peak. Really knocked it out of the park for me. What about you, Rob? I mean, gotta be the cat. Ask <laughs> just the way that everything comes together, the way that everything is set up and then executed. Um, but more than that, I mean, uh, well, I guess it'd be better to say um, exactly that. It's not like any of these stories were bad, but I felt like that was the one that had the least amount of not good stuff in it. <laughs> if that makes any sense, you know, that was the most polished to me. That was the most um, just expedient. You know, the storytelling was tight. It was efficient. Everything else, even if I liked what he was talking about, even if I liked the scenario, even if I liked the way that things panned out, it was just like getting there. was There was just too much fluff, too much blubber. Yeah. But with the cask of Amontillado, it was nice and trim. So it has to be my favorite. I enjoy the level of misspelling I had for some of these. Like the level i i updated a lot of things as we were talking yep no that's that's good yeah no 
Also, I wasn't going to say anything, but I'm pretty sure you've been saying the cast all this time. Yes. With a T? Nope. Yep. Yeah, I, I was. It's the cask of Amontillado. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it no, is. Like yep, that is accurate. Even though I, I read it, right? And like, my brain apparently just was like, no, 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 Sam. No, that's not right. That can't be right. Um, We're getting there. I, yeah, but um, overall, give it a go. Alan Poe was shot. If you haven't, there's a lot to read by him. And if you are a high schooler who is being forced to read some Poe and you're not liking what you're reading, it's all pretty short. So as long as you're not having to read the book of the seashell, it, it, you can get through it. You can get also, through. if you're scared by those stories, don't tell your mom. She'll make fun of you for the next 10 years. So just keep it to yourself, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah. I don't, I don't think... This is where we say, people. what? Like, subscribe. Let us know if you like Edgar Allan Poe or if you hate him. Yes. Or if you like the term grand fic. Do I, you have any grand fic that you think should be acknowledged? I like this. I think grand fic should definitely be a thing. A hundred percent. So. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yep. Uh, talk to you guys next time. Thanks, y'all. All right. Bye.